So all of a sudden, then Raymond shuts the door and basically says, well, I'm not going to give you a ride because I'm not giving him a ride. It was just for you. It's no good. Whatever. So he drives off and then <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden Waves stick, his hands sticks up. his yeah. left hand out the window and starts waving as he's driving off like the biggest fucking asshole ever. And it was great. Yeah. yeah. Spurlus. Yeah. Okay. Spurlus. Which means traceless. Oh, yeah. Well, there, thank you for that information, Toussaint. Yeah. God, you, I Keep just up. told you. Jesus these, okay. Christ. You're, so, you're, you're Toussaint right now in this conversation. Ooh. <laughs> Sorry. Ooh. <laughs> Fucker. I can't anyway. believe I just said that. But Burns. It's true. Burns. Ouch. I don't know who I just insulted. You insulted both, both of us. Both of us. So as long as I didn't insult myself. Anyway. Dick. Why didn't you pull the machines? Why didn't you call them? You didn't see what was going on? Well, there's no way to determine that. Yes, there is. An infallible way. They won. What's a casino? People got to win sometimes. Hey, what do you think? I'm a fucking idiot? Probability on one four-wheel machine is a million and a half to one. On three machines in a row, it's in the billions. It cannot happen. Would not happen. You fucking Momo, what's the matter with you? Maybe it was the love of the planets. Maybe it was just my growing dislike for this one. But for as long as I can remember, I have dreamed of going into space. Now that I've met you... Would you object to never seeing me again? The biggest regret of my life, I let my love go. That price on my head, was that dead or alive? Don't remember. See if he starts shooting. I don't ask you over for dinner and then suggest you give a lecture on the peoples of Mesoamerica or whatever your pre-Columbian shit is. This is my job. This is how I pay the fucking rent. The same gentleman that told me that you tried to get your broker's license also told me that you were a straight arrow. You ran a security check on me. Well... Sail on a boat fit for a Bond villain, sometimes you need to play the part, right? First of all, dude, you don't have an accent. Secondly, this is a fucking show dog with fucking papers. You can't board it, it gets upset. Its hair falls out. Walter. Fucking dog has fucking papers. Over the line! Huh? I'm sorry, Smokey, you were over the line, that's a foul. What happened? Did your your balls drop off? Hey guys, welcome into episode 33 of Film Tank. On this week's episode, we're going to be talking about our first foreign film uh, of this uh, podcast history, and that is 1988's The Vanishing, which was directed by Georges Slezet. And if I pronounce that incorrectly, all of our Canadian and French friends can tell us how horrible I am at pronouncing names. Anyway, I wish there's a surprising amount. Yeah, I know, which is that's fine. That that's good. If if that's uh you know what we have in terms of our listening base, then yeah. I should get better at pronouncing French names. That's right. Uh and if that is wrong, I, I hope someone does mention it so I don't completely sound like an ass forever. Starting off this episode, I think we should do a week in review, and that would be with myself, Alex Diegman, and the other two people who are here. Pretty regularly, and that is Nick Cheney and Tucson Egan. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be on this podcast for the first time. I know. I think you've been on every episode except for one. So. That is true. That was the baseball one. That is correct. Which is too bad because you were really missing out on my expertise about sports. <laughs> yeah, I know. You you have very wide-ranging opinions Although, on sports. ironically, looking over the list of the movies you guys talked about, I feel like I've seen almost all of them. Except yeah, for you... The Untouchables. I've never seen that one, actually. 
The what? Did you guys talk about... No, not the untouchable. The, <laughs> the, the natural. Fuck? Oh, the natural. Did you talk about the natural? Yeah. Okay, that's, that, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> you thought thinking the untouchable was a baseball film? Look at you. You don't know anything yeah. about sports. What the <laughs> yeah, but at least I know that The Untouchables isn't a baseball film. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> Shit, even I know that. Oh, did you? I knew it was. I just said the wrong title. The Natural is what you were going That's for. That's what right? I was thinking of, okay? okay? I was thinking of a guy in a hat. Anyway. Yeah. A yeah, guy in a hat. Because didn't uh, we watch Major League Together earlier we this did. year? We did. You made me watch it. I know. And oh, I was... You sound like it was like the worst experience no. of your life. Actually, I was not at... I thought I would hate it. And I didn't hate it. There were quite a few parts that I thought was hilarious. Whatever. Yeah, I did. It's a really it. funny movie. I do think it's one of those where, like, the earlier you watch it, the better. Probably in the same way that, like, I feel like if you show someone Airplane when they're like twenty-five versus when they're like thirteen for the first time or something like that, like you just don't develop that appreciation for that kind of. Humor. Stop calling me Shirley. That's <laughs> that's a great movie. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, yeah, Anyways. that's the only episode I've been on. Okay, well, but you are on this episode, uh, which is Am episode I? thirty. That was deep. Philosophically, I mean. Philosophically and physically, you are here. We'll see, at least. Okay. I guess I should be, because I was the one who picked this movie. That is true, since you are the uh, the biggest fan of foreign films among the three of us. And we. Yes. And also, <laughs> okay. uh, you, you uh, really do enjoy uh, these kind of films as well, not necessarily foreign films, but also the the uh, content of this film, which we'll get more into a little bit later. We will. But uh, in terms of week in review, who would like to start us off? Uh, I know I don't really have that much to talk about, so one of you schleps can pick off. I'd like to start if that's okay. Okay. <laughs> I just really quickly, I I don't know if I mentioned it. I feel like maybe I did once, maybe on the Chinatown episode when uh, when Aaron was here. But I've been watching like every Audrey Hepburn film that I can get my hands on because she's amazing. And I finally got around to a film of hers called Wait Until Dark, which was in 1980-something. Is that her single, like, rated R film? Because I was actually, like, looking that up when you were mentioning it on Twitter. It's not... Well, actually, I don't know if it's a single rated R film, but it's definitely her only thriller horror film. Like, yeah. She always did either drama or comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, Wait Until Dark is... Uh, it's, it's, it's Oh, my God. I literally fell in love with this film like it's very rare that i will watch a classic film especially and like fall head over heels and like just unabashedly know that i'm going to be returning to this film time and time and again but this was one of those cases it's uh it's based off of a play so naturally it's doing things that i love because it's a very minimal setting that just takes place in uh, audrey hepburn's character's apartment of course and um it's from the same playwright of the guy who made who wrote the script for dial m for murder the Okay. Yeah, mm. the uh, the play that uh, Alfred Hitchcock's film was based off of. And there's a lot of similarities between these two films, too. And I also watched that film for the first time this year uh, because both of them have to deal with, like, very convoluted but very, I would say uh, – uh, shall we say detailed crimes like you you, you watch and witness these c- criminals perform whatever crime that they're performing but in such excruciating detail that it almost defies the concept of plot holes because they think of literally everything that you would ever ask about how this could be possible and how did they get away with this whatever now the difference between these two films and that's particularly why i was so in uh i found wait until dark so endearing is that here you get to watch the actual crime take place, like from the entire, uh, pretty much from the start to the end of the film, whereas 
Dial Up for Murder, which is great and everybody should watch it, is more of like the first 10 minutes set up what this crime would look like. It, it gets committed and then it's about deconstructing what had actually happened. Hmm. But here the tension is much more uh, stronger because you're just watching uh, Audrey Hepburn's character who plays a, uh, a blind woman. And she gets basically accidentally mixed up with this uh, group of three criminals. And these criminals are after her because they believe that in her apartment is this doll that contains a package of heroin. And she has no idea. So it's not like these are like, you know, like she... This is like a childhood childhood heirloom? No, it's what happened was, if, if I must really quickly explain the beginning, her husband is getting off an international flight and runs into this woman who wants to go into business for herself and not give it to give what she's carrying, which is this doll carrying heroin, over to her boss. So she gives it to this random man who then she says, you know, like, I will come back for this doll, but I don't want my daughter to see it because I have another daughter who will get jealous if she sees, you know. Mm. So she comes up with this lie. So he ends up taking this doll that he has no idea what it contains to his house so the whole movie is these three criminals coming back for the doll while the husband is out and while this uh, character of Audrey Hepburn who's recently blind too it's only she, she got into an accident about a year ago she, so she's still learning how to you know cope with this mm-hmm. while these three men basically terrorize her and take advantage of her oh that, that being well not like that oh okay Although, toward the end, it does start to veer into that territory because oh. it, she, she is facing pure evil, basically. Uh, uh, but having said that, even though she is uh, only recently blind, she's also one of the strongest and smartest characters, not just female characters, I've ever seen on screen. Like, this is truly a battle of wits because, you know, the, the criminals come up with a little uh, signal that, like, every time they want the other person to come in and do their part of the rule, they will um, move her blinds up and down, which barely makes a sound. But because she's blind and her other senses get attuned, like, almost immediately after she asks, why do you keep playing with the blind? Like, you know, she, the, it's both, it's easy to shall we say, get around her, and yet she's also not just a dumb person. Now, in this film, do, is there, especially since um, in terms of using other senses in film, uh, that's something that really hasn't started until modern times, I would say, where where films trying to push the envelope with other senses happening with in terms of like IMAX films with the sound and that kind of thing. Is there ever any part of this film where... The visuals are taken away from the audience. Yes, because that is okay. why it is called Wait Until Dark. Because, and, and I'm not spoiling it, A, because it's a classic, and B, because you still don't know the outcome. Mm-hmm. But by the end of the film, once she has basically figured everything out, that's when the real horror sets in, because then she knows exactly what she's up against, and it doesn't mean she's in the clear or anything like that. Mm-hmm. She starts to make it an even playing field, if not even, maybe even advantageous to her, because she basically destroys every light in the apartment oh. for the next time they come in. And then it becomes of this very obviously uh, dark and blind battle of wits, and to which it just it, once you get to those last twenty minutes when she does that, it becomes a horror film instead of a thriller film, and it, it's it's fantastic. I literally cannot recommend it enough, and it's amazing to see what little things pay off, including did she unplug a fridge or not? You know, like little things like that that seem so inconsequential in the beginning of the script become literally the very thing that save her life at the end, and it's just amazing. So. Huh. If anybody's never seen Wait Until Dark, it is, uh, it's been rerunning on uh, TCM recently, so you can always try to catch it there. And it's on their app, too, because I found that uh, TCM Watch, I believe it's called. Uh, but if not, try to seek it out other, in another way, because it's fantastic. And oh. I can't get enough of it. Awesome. Yeah. All right, Tucson, go ahead. Okay. 
So I finished the first season of How to Get Away with Murder on Netflix, and that is uh, excellent trashy television. Uh, There's... There's no other way to describe it. It's something that I would put in the same categories of like a show like uh, Pretty Little Liars yeah. or Scandal or, or any of those other like tawdry kind of shows. Like uh, Viola Davis, I know that she recently uh, won an Emmy um, for her role as uh, Professor Annalise Keating, and she is definitely like the the gravity center of that entire like show. Everyone else, I I watched the first couple episodes of it. It's not that I didn't like it. Yeah, but I just I have a lot of things that I do watch on TV. That exactly, I and to... it's not a priority watch. It really isn't. Um, did you watch? I'm just curious. Did you watch the the premiere because it premiered the second no, season? No, I've I've just just week. today just wrapped up the uh, okay. the the first season on Netflix just because it showed up on there. And really, everyone else on the on the cast I can pretty much take or leave besides Viola Davis, just because the rest Whoa. of the the rest of the cast. It's not Liza Weld, isn't it? It's not against them. It's just like I don't like their characters. They're all just these shitty like law school like prep douchebags. Hear you speak ill of Paris Geller from Gilmore Girls. Who is Paris Geller? Liza Weld. She plays in the How to Get Away with Murder. She plays the kind of like assistant to Keating. One of the, oh yeah, yeah, I know her. Who I believe becomes a very big character by the end. Yes, of the yes, she does. Yes, she does. Of what I understand about yeah, she is all right. Yeah, she's. All I was right. just making a joke, but she's great in Gilmore Girls. <laughs> yeah, so maybe I should watch Gilmore Girls next. Everybody should watch Gilmore Girls. Yeah, seriously, it's one of the greatest shows of the last twenty five years. Hmm. Okay, so that's really all I watched. Oh, I actually uh, rewatched Predator. Uh, no, I didn't rewatch Predator. I actually watched. We uh, almost made it a whole week in review without a Predator. You set mention. me up for that one. I also uh, rewatched M Night Shyamalan's Devil. Oh, <laughs> Is that why you texted us about it? Yeah, that's okay. why I texted you about it. Yeah, I just thought that's how your mind worked. Like you were just like, oh, I'm thinking about Devil. So. Sometimes that happens. Yeah, like it does. That. Yeah, so sometimes like, just like, oh man. So what about Devil? Because. That was the weird film that, like, he was he the writer, it. but, yeah, okay. He yeah. wrote the script for it, though. It was actually supposed to be the first of, like, a... Is that by James Wan? No. I thought it was you, by somebody You think else. it would be, but it's actually not. Um, it was supposed to be in the first of, like, a like an anthology series of, like, <laughs> horror and technology, but turns you, out... It only, you mean we don't get more? We're not going to get more, no. Instead, we got The Last Airbender. Yeah. Um, so, basically, if you don't know what Devil is about, it's basically about a bunch of people who get trapped in a in a, in an elevator, and one of them's the devil, and they decide to, like, the, the devil decides to, like, pick them off one by one, and this uh, this investigator has to basically find out what which one's the, the devil. What are the odds that you're going to get trapped in an elevator with the devil? Fuck. Yeah. It kind of sucks. Yeah. It's, it's a... It's a really dumb premise. <laughs> the director of Devil is also the guy who just did that new film with Owen Wilson and uh, Pierce Brosnan. Oh, Brown No did. Escape? Yes. Oh. It's, uh, his name is John Eric Dowdle. That oh. film did not get good reviews. No. The reason why I said James Wan because I remember when I thought when Devil came out, there was a lot of like tie-ins like, from the so-and-so from Saw, so I was trying to figure out where that came in. I think that was at the same time that James Wan was directing... Uh, the film that that doll film is based off of. You know uh, what I'm talking about? Yeah, Insidious? Yeah. 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 That's true. Did like, Lee, Lee Wannell have some sort of involvement no, in this? No, apparently not. Yeah. I could not recognize a single name, so just ignore me. Hmm. So it was a bad film. The only thing that really <laughs> stuck out to me was the artificial like CGI like outside exposition shots of like New York. It's like, oh, that's a really pretty shot. It's not real, but it looks cool. Oh. And the, um, the opening title crawl, because I'm totally a nerd about opening title crawls, where it's like 
New York, but it's upside down. So it's supposed to be from the perspective of the devil, and it's twisting around. Oh. So, yeah, I enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. I, guess, I, I think it's too much to say that I enjoyed it, but, yeah, it was okay. Yeah, I mean, M. Night Shyamalan... It, it's hard to really he's find... bad at what he does. Yeah. No, he's good at what he does until he became bad at what he does. Yeah. No, I'm just, I still think, like, if you really compare his beginning output, uh, you know, the trifecta of, like, well, I don't really like The Sixth Sense, but if you put that aside and you put, like, even for me, Signs, The Village, and Unbreakable, like, those three alone just kind of signal that I thought he knew what he was doing, but... Then he sort of do indulge in all of his worst uh, habits. Yeah, and I've heard moderately decent things about the visit. That it's yeah, that is that, true. It does that, seem like a return to form from what I've heard. Yeah, and, and not that it's a great film, but at least it's possibly a step in the right direction. That no one ever goes from because we've seen other directors and filmmakers and actors in the past. I mean, look at examples like Robert Downey Jr. I know that was a different situation where he had a lot of personal problems. But at the same time, it's not like he just went from having all of his struggles to being Iron Man. Like He, he made every- one of my favorite movies of all time, which is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Right. He was in that. He was in Good Night, Good Luck. Like He had a lot of other smaller roles before finally he got his big break into moving back yeah. into stardom, pretty much, and becoming huge. Awesome. Which I feel like... I've said this multiple times, but I feel like M. Night Shyamalan is going to eventually make another movie that's really good. And it's just going to... You can't, he's not just going to go from all this fucking shit to one great film overnight. I agree. He's still a good director because, uh, to bring it back to TV, he directed, if not every episode, most of the episodes of this newest miniseries on Fox called uh, Wayward Pines, which yeah. is based off a series of novels. And I watched the first five episodes and was really digging it, actually. And part of the reason was the direction. So it's not so much that he's a bad director. It's just he just needs to choose his scripts more carefully well, or write and- them more carefully. <laughs> Choose his ideas and write them better. I think for him to, uh, he just needs to get good. Well, he just needs to understand sort of what he's his material and in kind of. And I think he changed as a filmmaker, obviously from where he started in terms of like major films with the Sixth Sense to where he is now. And I, I don't know. He just maybe needs to change again and do something completely different. What's do weird about that, you know that that's, that's not what he's been doing recently. What's weird about his career is that like when you look at his first four films or so, like he wasn't doing the same film over and over again. It was yeah the same kind. one with a ghost story. The other was like right. a weird kind of historical, slightly thriller. Another was a superhero comic book movie, mm-hmm. and then um, he did uh, what am I blanking on now? But uh, sign. Um, yeah. That's like an alien. Like, but, however, but then immediately had, after, it seemed like he started making the same film over and over. Well, that's true. However, his <laughs> mo his mo has always been that he's going to set these scripts up to have some sort of huge surprise at the end of it. Right. it with with the kind of the exception of signs, I, I don't. I feel like there are surprises in there, but there's not any like huge surprise like there is in signs or there is not signs uh, there is in I think he thought the water was a big surprise <laughs> and I'll admit it was a cute payoff but yeah. it's, it's not a twist it's just like oh okay cool but there's not like a huge <laughs> twist like there is in The Sixth Sense Sweet or The Village well those, those films have no, like yeah. these monumentally huge twists in them where signs people claim that it does but it really doesn't swing away Meryl <laughs> 
I like to think about. I like that's weird. I feel like Joaquin Phoenix. I know he had that whole like beard thing going on and change of personality, whatever. But really, his career is like two entirely different people. Like it's hard for me to think of Joaquin Phoenix now. Like if you think of him like in like The Master or in Irrational Man or something like that, and then you think of like back then, Joaquin yeah. Phoenix was like supporting an awkward character. Like he was right. good, but like Gladiator yeah. and Signs, like that. I feel like that almost like a different person, which obviously is what he was going for. But it's weird that how it actually ended up working if, out. That yeah, way. Like, I was gonna say like if you want a career t- trajectory, it's Joaquin Phoenix because you know to have a steady career and then to somehow accidentally, maybe not accidentally, maybe he knew exactly. Yeah. What he was doing, but I don't know how you could really predict that from that documentary. <laughs> Only uh, he knew. I'm not there, but to basically reinvent yourself as like the it man, not like in a Daniel Day Lewis way, but in like a I can be in anybody's film, like whether it's a Woody Allen comedy or a Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, Scient- Scientology uh, dr- dramatization. So yeah, that's insane, and well, good on him. Yeah, because it's definitely in a different career path, and I think that's you know not that. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan will have to go through some crazy documentary like Joaquin Phoenix did, but kind of what we were talking about that I think he's going to have to change what his, he does a little bit, but I think the talent is there for him to be uh, a really strong director who puts out really great films, at least one at some point again. We'll see. So uh, that was my week. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> we kind of trailed Just off there you're a little still bit. still here? Oh, yeah. We sometimes do that on this show every now and then. I know. Oh, do you? Oh, yeah. Do you, do you not like that we do that? That's yeah, all right. I enjoy <laughs> listening to your talk. Aww. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So sweet. Yeah. <laughs> um, the only film that I watched this last week is actually a film we all watched together, and I mentioned it. The Vanishing? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, I mentioned it on uh, my top six revenge films, and that is Rocky Four. Can you please describe the <laughs> scene where I lost my shit and almost died from like too much laughter? Where he gets Whoa. a robot? Yeah, the, yeah, there was. Uh, I should also mention that we also. Uh, I wanted to show Tucson and Nick because they had never seen Rocky three before. I had seen it. You, you've seen Rocky three. I've seen all. I told you I saw oh, okay. all five. I just haven't. Well, seen you it. hadn't remembered what I was speaking. I haven't seen it since I was seven. That is quite a while ago. I haven't then. seen either of them. So okay, so yeah, Tucson had not seen Nick. And you were even wrong about what you were telling me. Shut up. Anyway, kind let of, him finish his story. Sort of. Okay, there is a scene early on, not the very beginning scene, but there's an early on scene in Rocky Three where Polly, the drunk fucking leech of a brother in law to Rocky, uh, is walking through a totally like surreal nineteen eighties scene where he's in this uh, he's in this arcade. video game arcade and there's a Rocky pinball machine and Polly decides to chuck his bottle of alcohol that's yep. in its brown bag at this, and the whole game just like explodes. And it's actually a really re- bizarre and awesome scene. Oh, I that's thought. what it looks like inside. Yeah, well, yeah. But the film begins with Rocky. The end of Rocky Two, where both Rocky and Apollo are fighting in their second fight, and they both basically knock each other out at the same time. And there's this like slow motion of them falling to the canvas, and Toussaint was just like laughing his ass off. Thought it was the funniest thing ever. I don't know where that came from. So then we get they to actually... They were drunk. They were punch drunk, and that was funny to me. <laughs> well, okay. So we get to Rocky Four. then, the film we actually did watch, sit down and actually watch the entirety of it. And in early on in Rocky Four, there is this introduction of this creepy, weird robot yeah. that is given to Polly as a birthday gift. Yeah. And is this weird voice like, hello, Polly. And Toussaint could not handle it. Like, Toussaint was on the floor with his, like, knees pushed hard together, just, like, 
laughing out loud, giggling. I at had this no idea. I had no idea. I thought he was giving birth. I had no <laughs> idea that this robot existed or was in this movie. I knew nothing about this movie other than Ivan Drago was in it, and he went to the Soviet Union. I didn't know about this Butler robot, and I just thought it was the most absolute insane thing. Like, who the fuck's idea was this? It was Sylvester Stallone's idea. Oh my god. <laughs> that's that's who his a, idea was. Give him a robot. Uh, robot also I love to see when doubles S- as a phone. Stallone takes a call from the robot yeah. because he's got the phone in him for some reason. Like he's not just a robot, he's like a Swiss Army knife robot too. And um he's like rotating. He serves lots of purposes to the Oh plot. he does. Like I honestly was waiting for like the like inevitable showdown between Rocky and the robot. I thought the robot I do, was I do like the shit out of him. A couple of things. <laughs> uh, dun, 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 dun. I do like how Rocky and Ad- uh, Rocky and Adrian are Don't you mean Adrian <laughs> No, I don't, actually. I mean, just Adrian, but, no. you know, whatever. Either way. I've never heard anybody call her that. N- what? Just Adrian? Yeah. I've yeah. only heard it the other way. Sorry, Adrian. Yeah. I did it. You should fucking get an education. That's what you should do. <laughs> fucking Rocky. Yeah. So, anyways, they're both in the Soviet Union. The kid and his friends, for some reason, are back in the United States uh, watching this on TV, and the robot is behind them dressed as Santa Claus, and it is just- <laughs> That would be scarring. <laughs> that would be literally scarring to me oh if God. I was a kid. But is this robot is is it like this is this like Skynet time? Is this robot their babysitter? I think now? no. I was gonna say I think what happened is as soon as Rocky left the compound of his uh, estate, uh, this the robot's robot like I'm your new dad now. Figure, yeah, he was providing in ways that Rocky never could have. Let's go throw the football. Uh, also, the robot changed voices and became female because Polly wanted a female robot instead. Because that makes sense. Well, Polly's a very lonely person. That is true, as and evidenced by Rocky Three. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, is Rocky Four the one? Because we watched we just two, watched it. I know, yeah. but it, we watched two openings. That's true. Is Rocky Four the one that opens with the gloves exploding? Yes, it does. Yes. I was going to get to that. That's great. Which is something that I I, I don't necessarily that was forget also about. Really funny. But when the the two the Soviet Union and the American glove just start out on opposite ends and they start driving towards each other and there's just fucking big explosion when they hit. Oh, I that's can, awesome! I can't get behind the movie, but I can get behind that. Image. Can we talk about Apollo Creed's like entrance into the <laughs> Ivan Drago fight? Oh, with James Brown. I lost my shit on that too. Living in America. America. <laughs> oh yeah, man. just he won't was, stop smiling. Those, like, gyr- yeah. those gyrating hips, man. They yeah. were, they were doing that. Was that. A something. I also like that the uh, the the Russian is just in the middle of the ring while all this is going on. Just no fucking idea what's happening. Yeah, he's oh, right he out knows. Of his mind. He's just disappointed. Yeah, I will say though. Uh, this film, and uh, we talked about it a little bit, and both of you guys, uh, I don't think, thought it was the greatest film ever at all. Oh, no. No? However, I will say, and I, I mentioned this when we were watching it, that I think Rocky Four does do something that I don't even know if it was necessarily, well, it was intentional, but they didn't intentionally mean to hammer this point home as much as they did, which is about how uh, America's arrogant attitude is really like evident to other cultures and it's really not like good. It's actually I thought this pretty was much an, embarrassing. I thought this was American propaganda. And it'll get you killed. 
Well, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't know how you could say it was American propaganda, though. How can you I'm, not see that when I'm, Rocky I'm, goes to the Soviet Union, beats the shit out of Ivan Drago, and everybody's well, cheering him okay, on? Wait, wait, the only reason that. why I disagree with you, and I don't even like this movie, so I'm ashamed that I'm defending it, <laughs> is because Apollo Creed's entire sequence is basically saying, like, look how fucked up and ridiculous we look when we think that this is all right. that matters. Which is what I'm, which we're what gonna I'm trying killed. to say. Like, Rocky was only avenging a friend's death. Apollo was making this, like, about America. What, what, this is what I'm saying, though. Apollo is pretty much bringing out all of these things that are negative opinions worldwide about America in terms of their arrogant attitude. And that's what leads to its downfall. over-the-top, it, it just excitement about everything about America that is totally unwarranted. American exceptionalism, I guess. Yes, yeah. that is what's happening in the, in the Apollo fight to, scene. I, I still don't... Well, first of all... It still doesn't register I'm, for me well, in the end. I don't it's think like, it registers with that, you for so, good reason, which because I feel like Rocky is not the place to look for any kind of political I, nuance. Also, <laughs> I'm talking more about the early parts I of the I just thought film. it was fucking stupid because, like, wait, what you're saying now is that, like, people in the Soviet Union are okay with Apollo no, Creed no, dying no, because no, they, no, no. Exemplifies American exceptionalism, but they're okay with Rocky being the shit out of Ivan Drago because no. he was avenging Apollo Creek. I love that they cheer for all, Rocky. Okay, exactly. It's what I'm fucking talking Rocky. about. This, this is where we're at a totally different. But that's only because they love Rocky about. and Bullwinkle. Anyways, I'm talking about an entirely different part of the film than what you're talking about. Tucson. I was talking about. That. Yeah, sorry. I know. I was when I meant I made try to make my point. Okay, discussing about American and this sort of damnation of what American exceptionalism is. I was talking about earlier on in the film with everything involving Apollo Creed. Now, later in the film, that's totally dumb and totally doesn't make yeah, any just, sense. it doesn't make any fucking sense. Where all of a sudden, the Russian, Soviet Union, whatever you want to think about them as, mm-hmm. they all of a sudden just, oh, and I like how the commentators mentioned it too. Oh, well, uh, there's been a change of heart here in the crowd, and all of a sudden, everyone's rooting for Rocky. What? Yeah, it doesn't make any fucking sense. No, it doesn't. No. And it's just, I don't know. There's just a lot of nostalgic That was the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union. Rocky beat up Ivan Drago, and then, Boom. The, then the wall fell. Game over. Yeah. I also like, too, how the whole like crew of the, uh, the Soviet Union, like top top people in the Soviet Union, all started and started applauding Rocky, too. That's not when it wouldn't happen. Yeah, that doesn't make any fucking sense at all. <laughs> I enjoyed watching it, and I would watch it a million more times. Oh, yeah, I, fun, I, I enjoyed it, obviously, but... <laughs> It's a stupid film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's totally fine. Yeah. Stupid films are fun, too. Okay. America. America. All right. Time to move on to our main review as we talk about 1988's The Vanishing. Uh, this film, as I mentioned, directed by Georges Luzet. And uh, it is about a couple named Rex and Saskia, who are a young couple in love. They are on vacation in France. They stop at a busy service station, and at this uh, service station, Saskia is abducted. After three years and no signs of Saskia, Rex begins receiving letters from her abductor. This film uh, stars, boy, this is not a good place for me in terms of names, but... Bernard-Pierre Donnyadeu. There we go. Jean Berviot. Mm-hmm. Joanna Ter Steguet. That's probably all we need. Those three. Yeah. That's all we need. Those three. And uh, this film also was uh, written by Tim Crabbe, I believe. Crabbe. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And uh, yeah. We so... Made an attempt. That's all I think we anyone can really ask for. Oh, and the original name for this is Spurlus. Yeah. Okay. Spurlus. Which okay. means traceless. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you for that information, Tucson. Yeah. 
Uh, I think Nick should start us off on this one as he is the uh, highest on foreign films among this trio of reviewers, sort of. And also, uh, he is the one who brought this film to the table. So, Nick, why don't you start us off on your overall feelings on The Vanishing? I would love to. I assumed you would. I, if it's not clear already, I love this film. Mm. Literally everything about it. I This is one of my all-time favorite films. Mm. Can I mention something real? I know yes. I just kind of handed it off to you. Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> we did want to mention, too, if you haven't seen this film, um, yes. and uh, we, pr- we probably, if you don't want to know about it, probably shouldn't listen to this episode until you see it, because uh, there are reveals later on in the film that if you know the ending... Uh, and other things that happen later on in the film, you probably wouldn't enjoy watching it at least the first time out as you you would know everything. It's definitely a film that you want to uh, discover for yourself. I'm not think. against spoilers. Like, I, I don't care about spoilers whatsoever. And there's like a 1% of all films that I actually care about, like, but I, when I recommend other people, and this is one of those that if you haven't seen it, stop listening because you should go watch it. I like I recommend you should go watch it, and then you should listen to what we have to say. I was going to say because we are going to talk about the entire yes. film. And we're that not. being said, go back to your uh, initial thoughts, Nick. I think that there's a lot of stuff at play here because I don't just love it as like the thriller that it kind of is. Mm-hmm. I also love it as just like a domestic drama. I love this the the opening scene, uh, if not the opening, but like one of the opening scenes in which uh, the husband leaves the wife in the tunnel uh, because you think that that's where like the horror would come, but yeah. it's really not. It's actually just this like this test of like marriage basically you know would you listen to your significant other over doing what you think is right for the situation and you know what that can do to the other person's kind of mental state well and as being someone who has been in a relationship i have for six years i've been married for three now for me watching that scene i don't want to say it was like difficult because you're watching a scene in a film but it was like if if my wife was yelling at me, "Don't leave me here," I don't think there's any way in hell I'm just going to keep walking. No, yeah. and, and that I think that makes complete sense. And I'm not going to try to speak for anybody who's been in a relationship or anything right. like that. However, I also think like that it's just as easy to say that and then but like be in that situation and think that there's no other way out other than just stay here. I will go take care of it. Type you know whatever. Right. And like I so that's why I actually love that scene because I do think it's like it's that weird sense of uh like irrationalness like you you wouldn't understand why somebody would do that until you're just in that situation and then you think that that's the only way out but it is also telling about rex's character though like he does not he he does not have the same caring towards saskia at least on on a surface level that we are shown early on in the film and when it comes to things like that. Absence right. makes the heart grow fonder. <laughs> well, for me, yeah. what it is, is that's what that scene is the key to the entire movie. Not so much that he doesn't care about her, but he realized that he didn't show it well enough because that is what literally, I think, eats him, you know, his insides after she actually disappears hmm. because he realized what he did to her when he disappeared from her. So he can't imagine because he doesn't know what happened to her, what it must feel like to her when yeah, you know, when they did truly separate, if uh, he left and never came back, right? So yeah, it's kind of like that, because that makes sense, literally, because he yeah. makes that promise to her under the tree, which becomes mm-hmm. kind of a significant image toward the at the end of the film. Uh, but that's what I love about this movie is like it reminds me of Gone Girl in a way, in that it's almost like this exploration of marriage uh, through the absence of one of the significant others, because it kind of shows like how you can never truly shake the other person out of your life. 
if it's like you know uh, I would say not true love, but like if it's a valuable relationship. Obviously, if if it's a horrible relationship, it's very easy to be like, yeah, no, this this is the end, and I'm I'm never thinking about you again. But if there's something there, no matter how disturbing it looks from the outside, it, it, you know, it's that's what's real, and that's what's going to drive you. I will say also about this opening, not the opening scene, but early on the film in the tunnel, which is it, it actually works really well on multiple ends because not only does it set up the rest of the film like you're talking about, but it also does give kind of that jumpy, is this where the vanishing is going to happen? I mean, there's yep. no way we can go into the film and not think, oh, someone's probably going to be taken at some point in this right. film because it's called the vanishing. I right. mean, so it totally does make sense. And it also sets up this very um, weird, suspenseful scene involving a very strange poorly lit tunnel that they are in yeah. uh, and it, it just works on a lot of levels and I thought it was a, a really well done scene. For sure, when you contrast that with when that happens versus when the actual disappearance happens, the, the actual disappearance is so mundane. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just literally, she disappeared. You know, like it's not dramatic in any way. Uh, of course, once we learn what happened, we can maybe start to see how you know sinister and whatnot it is, mm-hmm. but the actual act of her disappearing at the gas station is it's just weirdly mundane because he like knows exactly where she's going to. She's going into the gas station. He, you know, she knows exactly what she's uh, going for and everything. It's just the fact that she doesn't come back, and of course, he has no idea why uh, at the time. Uh, but putting all that aside, like the opening, like I love this film because I love movies, and I kind of talked about it earlier with like uh, Wait Until Dark and Dial In for Murder. But mm-hmm. I love methodical scripts. I love scripts that set up situations in which you might not understand everything at the very moment it's happening, but if you keep watching the film, it'll pretty much, if not explain everything, it'll give you all the tools to understand everything. And I love that pretty much everything in the first 20 minutes or so, especially concerning the actual abduction, so to speak, pretty much gets explained down to the fact of like what he's wearing while he does it to how he gets it done because we see that this sociopath uh uh the person who actually does it uh, which his name is raymond i believe correct it is named raymond yes Mm -hmm. and um (laughs) um and raymond is one of my favorite like film characters of all time because Hmm. i love the way that they uh introduce his character because if you remember when we watched this film the the disappearance happens, and then we just cut to his character, like you know, like after Rex uh, is looking for uh, what's whatever her name is, Soskia, Soskia, yes. Um, but then we cut to Raymond's character, and we follow him for a good twenty to thirty minutes before we uh, go back to Rex's story. I will say too, uh, just to jump in really quickly, that this film, at least from the first time viewing it, does a great job of uh, having a non-linear sequence. Yeah that you don't really know if this is happening in line with other things that happen in the film, but you later, if you are able to put it together, can find out that, no, some of this happened prior, some of it definitely happened prior, and some of it probably happened prior. And it's um, you know very interesting and also very tactical as uh, Raymond you know, made all these things. It's not by mistake that things happened that he did because he's very concerned about... Uh, how things laid out in his plan. Yeah, and none of the nonlinear like storytelling that's used here is meant to be a confusing or b I would say misleading because 
all of the clues are embedded in the script because if you just listen to what he says, like when uh, the one woman says you should probably find this a gas station, you know, whatever. She thinks can... he's just looking for sex. Right. Yes. But the first time viewing the film, you don't yeah, yeah. know that when you see his early scene. No, 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 for sure. But I mean, what, I guess what I mean by that is like when the scene starts, you get disoriented just in the same mm. way that this whole entire story is a little disturbing and whatever. But by the time every scene ends, I feel like as long as you paid attention and you listened to exactly what they were saying, they give you enough clues like when they say like three years from the disappearance or when they say yeah. like, oh, I still have not uh, – When I forget, the, but there's a scene toward the, the beginning when um, Raymond is looking around and he says something like – or not he says something like, but they make a, a reference to one of the soccer players, the football players, I should say, and you can tell that when, when they made that reference, then you know that whatever hasn't happened yet because of, it happened the day of the disappearance mm-hmm. when he says something like they take his jersey. Yeah. You know, little things like that, that as long as you're paying attention to the script, you know exactly what has happened before the disappearance and after. And that's really the only matters. uh, That's the only thing that matters within this timeline. Hmm. Um, And of course, I'll pass it off. But just in general, I I absolutely love this movie because I personally think there's a lot to talk about. But at the very end of it, I also love the fact that when this movie ends, like this is one of the most disturbing movies I've ever seen. And not in a way that's violent or in a way that like I would say provocatively disturbing. Mm-hmm. This is disturbing in the way that like I can't get it out of my head after I've seen it because I I understand Rex's journey of just needing to know what happens and how that can lead to your downfall and how that could be the sickest ending of them all, which is not that he killed her or he raped her, but that he just simply Needs to know. buried her alive. Yeah. And like that's what's most fucked up about it. Like if he didn't go through with that, he could have maybe figured that out on his own, but you, you never have that confirmation. Well, and when we find out too that he he did just bury her alive and the 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 really only thing that could have been taken away from her was the sound of her screams and we have a scene very early on in the film where we see Raymond and his actual family who seems to be very happy with him and the very happy in general they're a little too happy with him well they're having this like Yay! Lo- this, this lovely lunch at the, their whatever escape or farm or this is like his new how because they keep referring to it as this new project and passion yeah and they don't yeah. realize why he wants it and they find some sort of uh, animal like a like a spider or something and one of the daughters screams and then all of a sudden another daughter screams and Raymond's really awkwardly being like oh and then they get the mom to scream and it's almost like comical the way the whole scene plays out which makes you feel really bad when the only reason he was doing that was because yes. he was asking a neighbor down the road if he could hear their screams because yeah. he wanted to do that as scientific research to see if yeah. they would hear uh, someone being buried alive exactly. screaming just like when he chloroforms himself just to see, like, and he, I think he does it more than once, too, but just to get the time trials of how long a person is out. But to think of it, that someone has such a tactical plan that th- this is not a crime of passion whatsoever, that this is a crime of f- just having this weird, almost like fetish. Yeah, so that's where, of course, and we can all talk about this, but that's, that's where the film gets even more interesting, in my opinion. But once he starts to truly divulge to Rex why he did this, that's when it gets sick because he starts to tell him that he only did this because he needs to prove to himself that he's not evil or that, you know, he cannot, um, like, or that the, he needs to see whether he can go through with this act or not. And if mm-hmm. he can, then, then he knows what he's capable of. But then that also further proves, you know, it, I don't even know what to speak just cause it's so, 
I, I don't want to say existentialism. Well, but it's also whether fate is real or it's yeah. it's also weird too because he, I mean, in in this, I, I guess doesn't it says more about what what the film thinks of it. However, it, it, this is a common thing where we see in films the the idea of uh, like using like someone who's easy an easy target. Like they use prostitutes as a possible example in this film. And pretty much just saying, just go try to find a prostitute or whatever. And I feel like Raymond as a character would just think, well, that's just easy. They'll just automatically get in the car with me. So he why actually, would I use that? He literally does save a line. He said, I thought about prostitutes, but that would be too easy. Right, which yeah. is fucked up because <laughs> really all he wants to do is kill somebody. But he doesn't want to kill somebody that would easily get into his car with him. Right. He wants to make it a challenge for himself, which is, yes, really fucked and up. And I think he, also going back to thinking that it'd be too easy if they actually like killed a prostitute and i don't want to like make any trivialize it in any way that's what i was trying to say too yeah yeah yeah, but like he wants to leave an absence he wants to leave a mark with his act and someone who will be missed yeah Yeah. exactly and he wants to like be able to like look at that as like his that that's his print of what he did yeah and that goes along with the rest of the story when he's like creepily following rex around sitting by him where we is the is the i mean you could he could be sitting there for up to a minute in one of the scenes and you would not know it they'd be like holy shit that's him i know that that's the that's the difference i think between american filmmaking and foreign filmmaking is that this movie does not hold the audience's hand whatsoever because when he does show up at the cafe there's no zoom in or there's no in fact it's even out of focus in the Mm -hmm. one cafe scene like you can tell it's him because you're staring at it but it does not draw your eye to it whatsoever and that's what's so creepy about the way this film is made yeah uh tucson sorry did do you have any other like did you want to tell well I, I had a couple of thoughts on it that yeah. i i really i did really enjoy this film i thought it was an excellent thriller um i wouldn't say it was like one of my favorite films but i could totally see why this would be like one of your favorite films and it's definitely something that i want to um it's a film that i want to return to it's like I, I would love to to watch this film again taking aside outside of the film itself we watched the the criterion collection edition of this yep. and i just wanted to like make note of like how excellent the menu design for this is yes. and that it is just such a it, it's such a mysterious and awesome image that once you watch the film it takes on so much more significance and it's so fucking rad and you just need to watch it at, at, on a criterion collection you and i had a literally a conversation before the film started about yeah. how cuz i literally when the menu came up and mm-hmm. i'm like oh god i love that image cuz that's the thing about that menu is that it works in two ways a it just kind of builds up a weird like what does this mean well, and, and also i think we should mention if anyone listening has seen the film but hasn't seen the criterion yes. what it, actually it is that's really the only edition that it uh, exists in America, yeah. but yes, and it is. It is an image of the the lighter that Rex is using when after he discovers he's been buried alive. It's like, just a blue flame, just right. like yeah, flicking we don't, we in the darkness. Right. Right. No, yes, right. Yeah. You just see a blue flame. Uh, yes, uh, but what, what I was saying to you is like that's the opposite of something like the Barton Fink menu. Yeah, that really <laughs> pissed me off. Where I uh, love Barton Fink, but I absolutely detest that that menu screen. Yeah, but yeah. The, this is an image that's literally from the film's climax, but it's done in such a tasteful way that it doesn't spoil anything whatsoever. Yeah, um, Rex is a very interesting character in that he would leave his significant other in a in a tunnel and then would fixate on her disappearance for three years. I also wanted, wanted to make note of just like his utter desperation in order to find her and that he's willing to like go off of the, the faintest whim of a hope in order to like 
keep all of the change that was transacted at that one location just in case there is a fingerprint from the guy who abducted um, his significant other. And I'm just like, do you have any idea how fucking <laughs> insane that sounds? Like, you're you're really dedicated. You know, you're a nice guy, but you're a desperate, stupid idiot of a nice guy. That's one of the reasons why I love the conversation between Rex and Raymond when they're driving. Because a lot of the things that Rex says, Raymond just said, well, no, I would have wiped the prints from that. or Like, he just completely shuts down, like, every, like, crazy notion he has about yeah. how he would have, like, figured him out. You're not very smart, are you? Yeah. <laughs> well... Yeah, I mean, I, I think what you're talking about, too, Tucson, about Rex being kind of a an everyman kind of guy and being – and also, you, you were saying that you thought he was probably, overall, probably a pretty good guy, right? He was I, – I don't, I don't even want to say he was a pretty good guy. He just seems like an average dude who also had, like, a, a problem with pride and, like, leaving – he has to leave on his own in order to get the petrol in order to do that, but he decides to, like, leave – like Saskia, like in the dark, and he has to like drive to the actual end of the tunnel in order to pick her up. Cause she See, like- there there are things in this film that made me feel like <clears throat> his character is not overall a very great person. Which- How the fuck did he get a girlfriend after three years of searching for Saskia, and like she's willing to be okay with the whole like fixation thing? Well, well I, she was until she wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I, I think she was because I mean, she, no, yeah. she she actually did love him as a person. Right. I think. So she went along with it because this was very important to him. However, it finally got to the point where it was way too much of an obsession with him. Mm-hmm. And I, I understand why he was obsessed right. with that. Not How, to mention, however, he was, I, I almost want to say, obsessed with it for the wrong reasons because he was never able to yes. move on because obviously Raymond is involved with him and he thinks he's showing up at every turn, which of course he was. I think it's very telling that you don't see him staring at like pictures in his wallet of Saskia or, you know, just something that seems sentimental. All you see is like... It's on a wall. Yes, like you see uh, lost pictures and you see him like, you know, furiously typing into his computer, which is probably the only misstep of the film because I I don't know why they ever really thought that, uh, what's his name, Raymond would be able to like hack into his computer and do that, whatever, but it's really a one minute scene in the entire film um but yeah the the, i agree with you that that's what makes him not the greatest person but that also that's also what makes him so human like he's only driven by his own needs which makes him even more i would say i i I hesitate to say the word sympathetic because Mm -hmm. it's like i can understand why anybody would obviously be distraught in this kind of situation yeah but just like just more relatable because i i I don't know i tend to relate more to selfish assholes for some reason um (laughs) whatever i just just do it is what it is it is um but there was there was something that you were saying Tucson, but now i forgot what it was shit i know was it about the quarters was it about rex that is actually the quarters that that is another uh great example of the script kind of like showing it's like how it sets up things because if they hadn't buried the quarters uh, because of their romantic oh, yeah. gesture, mm-hmm. uh, then she would have had enough money, and she never would have talked to uh, Raymond. You know, yeah. So I do love that because one of the other things that um, that's actually good, good yeah. detour here. And one of the other themes of the film is the idea of fate and whether it actually exists or not. Because by all accounts of what Raymond says, it almost seems like fate does exist because he says, you know, I, I wasn't even like you know targeting her or anything like that she kind of just fell into my lap well so no speak. that that he he wasn't he wasn't though so i think that's well, yeah. the, i think that's the whole part of the scene 
is that we find out from Raymond that he was targeting her and then she's gone and he goes for somebody else and that doesn't work out and he thinks in his mind that he is that he doesn't really want to do this and he's be able to move on. He even goes as far to take off his his whole regalia of his yeah. his um his sling. His sling. He takes off his other part that it was making him feel confident of being this sort of weak per- person that people would follow along. And he, he decides to just give on that and pretty much go home. And then Sasuke just shows up again asking him for a favor. And he's just like, oh, well, I changed my mind. I'm going to kidnap her. Yeah. No, and I, I agree with you. But that's what I, I guess I was about to say. But he's contradictory in nature because yeah. he thinks it's fate. And yet he doesn't realize that it's his own doing that. Uh, I would say uh, sets these dominoes up to fall. Uh, Toussaint, are you smiling for a specific reason? No. Oh, okay. No specific reason at all. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you had something to say. No, no. <laughs> well, then never mind then. No. Um, this is an excellent film. Yeah. I'm just thinking about all the details about it. Overall, there are a lot of things about this film that are very, I would say, unusual for this type of film. We get a lot of very specific detail. We we get a very interesting view of Raymond as a person because, yes, he is very much a sociopath who is uh, only thinking really about his view of things and what he needs to do, while at the same time planning out this very extravagant uh, event that's going to happen in every minute detail that could possibly happen with it. Of course, things happen that he wouldn't plan on, and he kind of adapted to that, as we see in the actual abduction scene. But as as a character, he's he's so peculiar and, and bizarre, and it's it's just really weird. Especially my like hands down favorite part of this uh, film, favorite scene is when he tries to uh, uh, you know at the first time just the practice. The... He tries to pick up somebody and. I don't even think he was trying to actually abduct her. He was just to see if she would get in the car with him. Right. And so so she is pretty much a hitchhiker saying, you know, give me a ride. And he says, oh, you know, come on, get in the car. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in this, like, the middle of nowhere, this guy jumps out from behind a rock and says, oh, by the way, we're together. You need to get both of us a ride. Because both of them are thinking smartly in the sense that yeah. people pick up a female but not a male. Right. Yes. And if they're together, it's like, oh, well, you know, this isn't going to work out, whatever. So he, he jumps out. So all of a sudden, then Raymond shuts the door and basically says, well... I'm not going to give you a ride because I'm not giving him a ride. It was just for you. It's no good. Whatever. So he drives off and then all of a sudden <laughs> waves sticks, his hands sticks up. his yeah. left hand out the window and starts waving as he's driving off like the biggest fucking asshole ever. And it was great. Yeah, yeah that, that was a great. And I love that they use his own logic against him because he sees a female and they, of course, uh, they were using them. Like, oh, no, were, you could kill me. Yeah, like they were baiting him in the same way that he thought he was, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, trapping her but that also leads to another great scene in my opinion when he meets the school teacher or something like that of one Mm -hmm. of his daughters yeah and he he doesn't realize who she is at first and when he he's trying to practice because that's the other thing he practices all these routines first like like you were saying he's not so much that he's trying to abduct every woman that he encounters but he wants to time out every single part of the process so he'll you know just try every part and so when he accidentally runs into a, a school teacher of one of his daughters she like sees almost through exactly what he's doing because then she she's the one that gives him the idea to go to the gas station and I, I I do think it's ambiguous as to whether she knows exactly what he's doing or whether she's just thinking that he wants sex because it's so like you were saying peculiar and like it had 
Um, Mr. Raymond, are you trying to <laughs> kidnap a woman chloroformer and bury her alive? <laughs> I was going to say, either way. My it's, cousin it's, Jerry was doing that. You should probably go to the to the gas station and find yourself a... Uh, 35,000 people go there a day. Yeah. Yep. A yep. I, I Just think a regular chick. It's a very interesting statement, too, about abduction in general as this film goes over. As we start, as we were talking about earlier with the tunnel scene where we see... You know, this film talk about the vanishing. We know that probably someone's going to be abducted at some point in this film, or they're going to disappear. And we think in the dark, everything. Where in reality, the odds of you being abducted in a dark tunnel are pretty much zero. No. But the odds of you in a very crowded place, broad where daylight. in the broad daylight, and she's just taken. And honestly, with the exception of one really rudimentary Polaroid, there's really no evidence of her being taken at all. Yeah, no, for sure. And another thing is, I love the way that I feel like Rex and Raymond start to look like the same character because they both start to get, uh, I would say, driven by practicalities rather than emotion. And I, I wouldn't say Rex is a sociopath per se, but they're they're both they're both driven by that kind of need uh, for you know information rather than uh it's hard to explain but i guess a good example is um if you compare rex's desire to know what happened rather than just to get his you know woman back um it you can kind of compare that to the idea that um raymond is just as i would say unimaginative as rex is because rex can't fathom what raymond possibly did to the woman uh and yet neither technically can raymond even though he did it because all of his ideas were given to him by other people or other things. If you look at the sling, it's only because the daughters gave him a, a, a scrapbook where he remembered about um, when he first broke his arm and what that did for him. If you look at the gas station, it's only from the woman that, uh, you know, whatever. Like, everything that he did in this process, uh, he it was not his idea. He had to, he had to stumble onto it, basically. Because he doesn't have that imagination of how to get this done. He only has the drive and, you know, practicality of how this would actually work. Mm. And I also think that by the time he actually uh, abducts, even the uh, what he considers the worst thing, because he keeps telling Rex, oh, I did the worst thing I can possibly imagine to a person. There are worse things than death. We find out when he gets pulled over in the end of, toward the end of the film that he has a medical certif- certification diagnosis that he's claustrophobic. And even that is inspiration for what he did to Sasia. So I feel like that's what's kind of interesting about what he goes through and what he, you know, puts Sasia through is that even that's like from a lack of imagination. It's all from his very subjective point of view. And he doesn't realize that he's, I would say just as, uh, mundane as Rex too. Like, I don't know. I guess that's, that's one thing that I start to notice in the rewatch. Cause this was the second time I had seen it. It's how similar those characters are, even if they're driven by completely different needs. We see small little scenes of this film though, that are very, I would say powerful, uh, throughout and, and and they kind of are intermixed with it so i feel like it, you can't have these like huge scenes that are very important throughout the entire film there always have to be kind of sprinkled in but when i when rex arrives at the location where he and saskia were going to vacation at i think that's that's a scene for me that is like very important to this film as he arrives there and i think he he has the realization of what their life could have been if not for this event, which I feel like makes regret such a big part of this film, even though it's out of his control, 
I feel like Rex regrets something that he, he could not make happen. Right. And it, it's just weird because I feel like the message of this film, it, I feel like if you watch it one time, you could have one takeaway from it. And if you watch it a different time, thinking a different thought process, you could have a totally different reaction to what this film is trying to say. It improves upon rewatching. But yeah, but I feel like it could be even different than when you right, watch it the first it time. Improves or just changes because, uh, like the first time I watched it, I was just so floored by the disturbing mundaneness of this crime and this ending. You know that he was just going to, you know, die in this coffin, and, mm-hmm. and especially due to the acting, I thought like in that scene particularly when he just starts laughing because he realizes like how stupid he was basically because this is it and this is, it, which is one of the most. Uh, Blunt metaphors for life uh, and huh. death. <laughs> I see why you got all existential about this. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but then, like, the second time I watched it, that's when I really got into the whole methodical sociopathy, you know, kind of uh, theme or whatever. But now, even when I started this podcast, I was uh, mostly remarking on, like, the domestic, I would say, like, themes of this, too, because I still think it also comes down to, like, he made a cardinal sin in the tunnel, and the entire film is also driven by him trying to make up for that. So that's, I, I just that's that's why I love this film personally. I feel like yeah, every time you watch it, you can latch on to one other thing, and it can completely change your view as to what's important in this film and what's not, and what this film is ultimately trying to say. Well, and, the, and there also is a lot of really well put together plot points throughout the film. I feel like the script is is very tight throughout this film. Even small things like the frisbee, we see that get called back later in the film in a very impactful way even for Rex's character. The frisbee, uh, which also kind of looks like a golden egg, which they also talk about because that's her dream at first when she re- uh, recounts this dream she has about how she felt like she was in a golden egg. And it felt like, like I think she said something like time was eternity or something mm-hmm. like that. And then later when she when Rex visits the place that they were supposedly, I think, had already been, because it looked like a flashback when they were like driving up to the one compound either that or it was the image of where they were supposed to go mm-hmm. yeah one of the two that, yeah i think that was it um he also says that at that moment he was starting to see because he kind of like faints under the grass mm-hmm. and he tells his newest uh significant other that he like at that moment it's not until then that he like also feels like he was in this golden egg which is one of the only parts of the movie that i feel like it's completely obviously ambiguous as far as to what this and when they crash something will end Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and that's one of the only parts of the movie that's, like, not explained whatsoever, which I don't think it's supposed to be. And also, it, it is probably important to note that the original, I think, short story that this. The Golden Egg. Yes, it's yeah. called The Golden Egg. So, like, that part's way more important. But even if you, like, forget about that part, there's still other stuff in this movie to latch on to. And before we go to our final thoughts and ratings, let's just. Uh discuss our feelings overall on the on the ending and the yes. impactfulness of the final moments of this film which just involve Rex being inside uh, this coffin and also sort of the feeling which I think is the first thing I thought of which is thinking of how Saskia's time was spent in this coffin where she spent her however many days pretty much just starving to death in this horrible enclosed environment with really no hope and no one coming to save her. And just a, a honestly, just a horrible feeling as, as I was like, man, this is like, I felt bad for Rex, obviously, but also I, I've, 
just had a hard time not thinking about Sasuke in that entire scene because it's it maybe it, it, it's not even maybe it's it's worse for her because she's terrified of the dark mm-hmm. and and she has to just die that way yeah and he literally laughs because he kind of got what he wanted which is of course not anything like her situation mm-hmm. which is she never wanted but but she right. got basically her worst fears of no one was ever going to, to come back come back for her and she was going to spend the rest <laughs> of her life alone i mean it's just it's just horrible yeah that's and no, certified fucked up and i agree and that's also to kind of really quickly bring it back full circle to what I was talking about at the beginning of this episode. Or oval. (laughs) But that's also why I think this is one of the best, like almost exploration of the marriage, because that's, that's almost like the most fucked up metaphor for what a marriage is that, you know, he, cause he got to that same place as where she was. And yet he realized how unfulfilling (laughs) that was for him, uh, despite the fact that that's what he thought he wanted. So like the, the idea is that they, they end up together and yet that's also the worst possible possible thing that they could have uh not that that's every marriage or anything like that mm-hmm. but you know it's, it's it's one take on marriage and for a certain couple and that's how uh it's fucked up it is it it, it really disturbed me the first time i saw it i have to should monogamy kills although i gotta say <laughs> the thing that messed me up the most and i don't know how you guys saw i'm just curious before we go into final ratings how did you guys feel about the scene directly before that because for me my favorite scene in the movie, as far as when I was most emotionally involved, was the proposition. The if you drink this, I will show you. You know, like the whole when they return to the gas station and all that. Because I don't know why, but for me at least, that was when I was actually when the first time I saw this movie. I was sick to my stomach mm-hmm. when he was giving that proposition, and Rex is like literally running around like a maniac because mm-hmm. he doesn't want to do it, but he does because it was at that moment. That's like, that's the moment before you're about to make a choice that you can never take back. And mm-hmm. I was just curious to that. Cause I could see it to some other people how it might seem silly because it's a little, I would say melodramatic, but did that scene work for you guys at all? It works because he's been fixated on this for the past three years. So it makes sense why he would yeah. toss and turn over this. Like, yeah, he's gonna freak the fuck out because he's fucking insane over this shit. Yeah, he needs he needs to find a resolution. He needs some type of a release from this this fixation. So yeah, yeah. yeah I feel like for for um, Raymond, I feel like this is a very interesting scene as well. I mean, I think everyone thinks about Rex in that scene. So well, they should. I mean, he's the he's the main part of that scene. He's the one who the action is going to be happening to. However, you think about Raymond and where he started with this, where pretty much, I don't think he necessarily knew all the particulars of Saskia's life or anything really about her. Didn't know that she had a a boyfriend, husband, or a marriage, uh, any sort of things. She she was just a woman who he picked out who he thought would be a good target for this. And he, an unintended consequence of everything that happened is he ends up following the story Raymond does of his own abduction of Saskia. And he, he follows Rex and Rex's search for Saskia. And basically it comes full circle for him, but he goes through with this again uh, in a, a much different way as basically he, he forces the uh, Rex's hand and he pretty much gives Rex the choice of you can, you can go along with this, the what happened to her and Rex has a, is a completely different place than Saskia was as he makes the decision to go through with this, where obviously Saskia being chloroformed and forced into the car. I mean, she was 
I mean, it, that it's just horribly forced upon doing this, where it was told, and not not saying that it was good what happened to Rex at all. However, he, he willingly goes right into what uh, he says is going. I mean, not right away. There is obviously resistance that's happening involved in, but at the end of the day, he says, "I will do this," and he drinks the uh, yeah. the drink to. I think it turn into the, the the final scene then. Yeah, no, I think it totally obviously. I, I don't know who could watch this film and watch a scene like that and think that Raymond would have forced him to drink that or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty obvious that if he said no, he would have said, okay, well, I'll drive you home. You know? Well, obviously, and, there was some resistance from him as well. He's not just like turning around right away and driving right away. He's still no, trying yeah. to give him the chance to. He, right. But at the same time, what's he going to do? Like, no. the, the, like the other option is to chloroform him where Raymond won't get out of that. What he's trying to get out of that now. And what I love about that whole final confrontation is like this is his newest project, so to speak, yeah. as far as like in sociopathy, and that you know he he evolved from the idea of like making someone a victim to seeing if like if basically like almost like observing another human being and seeing if they would still you know go through because I think he even says something like he was reluctant to even uh, you know reach out to him because of course of what he did to Saskia but it wasn't until Rex's like insistent uh uh, like call basically shout outs because he's like on TV saying like if you're you know watching this you better watch out and you know just tell me what happened whatever and it wasn't until he did that for like three years that he finally was like okay fine if you really want to know well and at the same time though I think in your comparison of Raymond and Rex's character I think is pretty spot on obviously they're different kinds of characters but Raymond at the same time is is, is doing the same thing where almost he has to know what Rex is thinking of yes. too because he's also been the one who's been following this and he's been staying with it and he's not able to get past what has happened with Rex at the same time. It's this completely like unexpected, like almost side effect of his own, you know, right. the abduction that he performed. Unintended so. consequences yeah. of his previous actions and, and both men want to see what the other one will do. And we get a resolution to that. We do. So should we go into final ratings? I think we should. Go ahead, Nick. I, I, I'm assuming we're going to get a pretty high rating from you. <laughs> we are in barely any words because I've obviously spoken a lot. So I'm just going to say it's a five-star film for me okay. because I just I, I wouldn't personally want it to be any different. And everything that it is, I personally love. So this is one of those films that, it, you know, I definitely think that there's a lot more going on than just the, like I would say... Uh, like the thriller component of it as far as like you know the abduction and what happened to Saskia like I do actually genuinely believe that there's a lot this movie has to say about uh, you know being in a committed relationship or even just uh, sociopathy and all those kind of themes and I think somehow this film obviously does it effortlessly uh, as far as explores these different themes uh, with one simple narrative and that's that's what blows me away every time so Mm. five star film for me okay Go ahead, just I would give this uh, three out of five, just simply for the fact on the strength of a of a first viewing. I thought it was a really good film. I would definitely recommend it. And this just seems like a film that I know that I could probably return to, and I really could like sink my teeth into like the meat of the structure of this film and how like tightly wound the script is. So I'm looking forward to to a rewatch of this. Yeah, yeah and for me, um, I'm going to give it a three and a half out of five is that uh, I I did enjoy it uh, very much so, and I think I enjoyed it even more than I initially thought I did, uh, especially since talking about it, which happens very often on this uh, podcast. I'll like something more or less depending on how the conversation goes. Uh, But at the same time, 
uh, first viewing of this out, uh, uh, it's it's hard to say really how to feel about it throughout most of the film. But when the film concludes and you're able to put all the pieces together, uh, that's something that I think is equal to a very strong film. And even though this isn't necessarily my favorite genre, uh, I really enjoyed what this film was bringing to the table and what it was trying to say. And yeah, absolutely for me, I would watch it again yeah. in a heartbeat. It's, it's just say. a very uh, film that you definitely can't necessarily stop thinking about but it's definitely a film that you don't just forget right after you view it yeah and i don't want to like take away what you're saying but i think the biggest strength of this movie is the fact that it has a narrative that says like you must find out what happened in the end and yet by the end of the movie you also don't want to not watch it again like Hmm. because i think it would be very easy for this film to be like well now that i know why would i ever view that ever again Mm -hmm. and yet that's i would think at least the one strength that i think i would recommend to anybody to at least try it is that it's it's more complicated than you think okay very good all right well that was our review of the vanishing the uh, 1990 1988 pardon me uh horror film horror suspense uh, i think it's psychological horror psychological horror Yeah. yeah that's a good way to put it and uh i'm sure we're going to do more foreign films in the future is uh Think we enjoyed doing this episode and, there, and there's a lot more i mean there's there's all kinds of different genres and kinds of foreign films i i, I think the odds of us doing uh, a uh a film like rashomon or something like that in the future are pretty high so yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll we'll see what happens down the road with that on our next episode we're going to move back into american cinema and move back into new releases as uh, Ridley Scott, who's become kind of like Woody Allen. He has a film coming out every year somehow. Mm. Uh, and this is another major science fiction release, and that is uh, the new film, The Martian. And uh, the star- film stars Matt Damon, and uh, it looks like it could be pretty good. I-, I think there's a pretty good chance it's better than Exodus, Gods and Kings. Uh, I guess that remains to be seen, but just from the trailer... Trailer's fucking awesome. Yeah, I- I'm-, I'm on that board Jimmy with Hendrix that. track. With the with the drums, holy shit, it works. And uh, I don't know if this is going to be trying to steal anything from Gravity or Interstellar or anything, but we'll, we'll see what happens with the film, and uh, we'll obviously be talking about it on next week's episode. It's got the best viral marketing ever with a Blood Moon and Water on Mars in, in the week leading up to it. Holy so, fuck, right? Yeah. That's expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they really engineered that. Yeah, yeah Ridley Scott. Hey, uh, is there a way we can make a, a blood moon happen in the uh, next week? Matt Damon's in this, so we really need to step this up. Matt Damon. No, never mind. No, I'm so sorry. Yeah, should be. Just cut that out, I guess. No, no, we'll leave it in. It's fine. Well, what the fuck? <laughs> If you uh, have any feelings on The Martian uh, before we uh, can get to the episode and you want to uh, give your review on it, or you have an idea of how much you hate Matt Damon, uh, that's totally fine. You can send that to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You also can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at filmtankshow. And if you want to listen to our episodes, find us on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes or Stitcher. So from Nick Cheney, Tucson Egan, and Alex, myself, Alex Diegman, thank you very much for listening to this episode of Film Tank. We will catch up with you next time.